Blog Talk Radio. Everybody and welcome to Trundlebed Tales. Today's episode is number 34, and we're going to be talking about a particular one-room school museum program in Marshalltown, Iowa, and uh, its phenomenal um, organizer, Julie Lang. And it's going to really, I think, be an enjoyable show, so I hope you enjoy it. But before we get there, we have a little housekeeping to do. And uh, first off, I wanted to apologize to regular listeners. Normally, I have kind of a pattern that I flow through through the month that we have a one long interview show. We have a shorter one where I talk about a topic, and then we have a travel episode and a 15-minute short one, What's Going On in Laura Phantom, and I kind of totally fell down on that in the last two months. But hopefully we're going to get things back running like they should be, and as a good start of that, we're getting the interview here done on the very first day of the month. And then tomorrow at 2 p.m. Uh, on Central Time, I'm going to be talking to two ladies from the Mankato uh, Convention and Visitors uh, Center, which is where the Laura Palooza Conference is going to be. And we're going to be talking about all the things that are available to see and do in Mankato besides the conference. So I think that'll be a really good one. And uh, then we're going to be up to what's happening in Laura Ingalls Wilder fandom this month, and we're going to try and get that one in on Tuesday. And uh, just as a heads up to everybody, the Laura Palooza Conference is going to be this month, July um, 12th through the 14th. And during those days, it, they will be at odd times. It'll be whenever I can fit them in. But I plan on doing uh, from the road reports. And hopefully we're going to get the video diaries uploaded each day too. So there's going to be a lot of stuff going on in July. It's going to be an incredibly busy month. And I hope that you'll stick around and catch some of that too. I did want to make sure that everybody knew that if you want to, you can call in. Our numbers here is 714-242-5253. That's 714-242-5253. Or toll free one eight seven seven six three three nine three eight nine. That's toll free one eight seven seven six three three nine three eight nine. And we've also uh launched the chat room so all that's ready to go so you can listen either way and if you have a question you can call in or if you're just out and about and don't want to be tied to the computer you can listen that way too. And if you have a question and don't want to be on air you can surely ask it in the chat room. So we've got that going too. And I think that's all the housekeeping for right now. So let's put our chores away. And bring on Julie. Hello, Julie. 
Hi, Sarah. Thank you for inviting me to talk about my school. Well, I'm very glad that you could because, uh, seriously, I think that it is one of the best and most accurate one-room school museum programs in the country. So I am very glad that uh, we can share it with a few more people. Well, thank you very much. That's pretty kind. Um, uh, yes, anyway, I'm Julie Lang, and I'm a retired fourth-grade teacher from Marshalltown, Iowa. And as you probably have guessed, I have a passion for making history come alive for children. And uh, I think you certainly do do that. So uh, let's just kind of back up and start at the beginning. How did you get involved with the, the Marshalltown One-Room School? Well, I've been on the board of our local historical society for many years, and they are who owns our school. And then this is my 21st year volunteering at the 1900 Farm at Living History Farms in Des Moines, and that's kind of where I got my interest in authenticity. So when I retired from teaching seven years ago, I raised $62,000 to restore our school and start our full-day free reenactments for every fourth-grade child in our county. And this is our fifth year of meeting that goal, and it has amounted to about 30 classes per year, which is about 600 kids so far in the last five years. Well, that is a really impressive number. Um, Was your school already in the location it is now, or did you have to move it in? Yes, we moved it. It was three miles north of Marshalltown until 1955, and then it was moved into town, and now it is at 19 North 2nd Avenue, right in downtown Marshalltown. Which is a lovely little town that uh, those of you from out of state, if you ever get a chance, I think it's worth the drive. It's a very pretty little place. Uh, And, all right, so we got the museum in, we got it... um, downtown in Marshalltown. Why did you select a specific date for your museum? A lot of one-room school museums tend to be just sort of thrown together, hodgepodge things from all different eras, which is prob- which people who've listened to me do these episodes before know is not what I think should be done. So why did you guys decide not to do that? Well, children learn more and enjoy it more if they're fully immersed in an activity. The more detailed information uh, we have to work with, the easier it is for kids to use their imaginations and pretend that they are 1913 country school pupils. Uh, We incorporate actual events into our reenactments. Uh, For example, I tell the kids that instead of using their language text today, since they've been talking so much about the circus that they went to in August, that the older pupils will get to write stories about their day at the circus while the younger ones will draw, color, and cut out their favorite circus animals. And then I read excerpts of the circus articles from our local 1912 newspaper to help them remember their day. And then another part of the decision to choose 1913 was that we had primary sources to help us be true to that year. And these include the 1913 teacher's register, several photos of the 1913 class and school, and then we also had the memories of a former pupil at that time period. So 1913 was sort of a, a rich period uh, for what you had for sources. Um, but if it, it, I mean, schools went on a lot longer than that. Was there a reason you wanted an earlier time as opposed to, say, a school during World War II? 
Uh, just uh, what you were saying, we had a lot of rich resources from, from 1913, so that was also the first day of school at this Taylor Number 4 building was December 30, 1912. Oh, so that would, would fit right in then, too. Right. Okay, uh, so one of the things that, that you did in uh, preparation uh, for Hello. Hello. Uh, yeah. Julie, can you hear me now? Yes, I'm here. Okay, Sarah. I'm sorry. I I should warn you that uh, I should have warned you that Skype sometimes cuts me out for just a minute. Uh, but to, to not worry that I'll be back. No um, problem. All right. So I was I was asking you about your um, oral history that you you did as part of this. Can you tell us a little sure. bit about that? You bet. Yeah, we were really fortunate to have found a primary source to interview. He was a former Taylor Number no. Four pupil in the teens. His name was Ward Handorf, and he had a great memory. And he met me several times at the school to talk about his eight years at Taylor Number no. Four. Ward's contributions to authenticity include physical details like where items were placed, such as the pump organ, uh, religious pictures, President Washington and Lincoln's pictures, the map box, the Aladdin lamp, where the pins were kept. Uh, Ward said that the pupils brought metal drinking cups to school at the beginning of the year, and, and they kept them on the window ledge. But when they wanted a drink, they just would grab the nearest cup. Um, then you know, he'd also tell us that uh, a mouse occasionally would make his way into the school. So at our reenactments, a student pretends to have found a dead mouse, and, and they think that's a pretty funny part of the day. Uh, Taylor Township was pretty wealthy because of their rich farmland, but Ward said that people were still very frugal. Only a few children had pencil boxes because they weren't necessary. So when we do our reenactments, we only use a few pencil boxes. Uh, Ward also relayed that the younger pupils were often afraid of the gypsies, and they would talk about that fear. So at our reenactment, the teacher tells the little kids not to be afraid of the gypsies, that they're going to move on in a few days anyway. Uh, when I asked Ward about the curtains, he stated that the white curtains at the school needed to be high enough so that the children couldn't see out of the window and low enough so that the teacher could. So he helped <laughs> us in, in many, many ways. I always I, I like that thing about the curtains. I think that sounds like such a, a good rule. Yes, um, yes, it does. And I also find it interesting about the the drinking cups because that's uh, one thing that I kind of try and track because that was one of uh, Jesse Field Shambaugh, who was uh, the mother of 4-H and was a uh, county superintendent. That was one of the innovations she tried to bring in that everybody had their own drinking cup instead of just using the common dipper. Mm -hmm. But it sounds like it didn't always work out in practice like it, it was supposed to in theory. Yeah. Well, it's in the physiology text that they're supposed to use separate cups, but evidently they didn't always listen. <laughs> okay. Um, you had uh, found a, a teacher ledger. Why don't you Tell us a little bit about what that is. 
Well, uh, thanks to people many years ago who donated items to our historical society, we found the classification register from Taylor Number 4 in 1913. Uh, this helped us immeasurably in making our reenactments authentic. From the register, we find the texts that each child used per subject per term. So now our reenactment children use the same text that their 1913 counterparts used, and these were books like Brooks and Gordon's Readers, Hunt's Orthography, Hamilton's Arithmetic, Crone's Physiology. Um, so I found those books mostly online, and that's what we currently use at our reenactments. And then, of course, we use a shortened version of the schedule that was also found in that register. Okay, so the the register had, uh, like, the teacher's schedule. It had the the books uh, that they were using. Uh, did it say just like a list of the ones the school had, or were they the list of which individual child's text? Each individual child had a number, was assigned a number, and then beside their number it listed which book they were in and which pages they covered per term. So a lot of information. That is a, a nice lot of information. All right, and then did it have like their attendance, or yeah. was it just the grades? Okay. So, and that it had the days when they took off for the county fair and uh, days they had late starts, just, just a multitude of, of facts. So a teacher ledger is a great thing to have if yes, you're going to be doing does. a reenactment. Okay, let's let's talk about the, the textbooks a little bit more because um, one of the things about those kind of one-room school museums where everything's just sort of thrown together, one thing is that they... Uh, always seem to want to use McGuffey's because McGuffey's is what has been reprinted. Mm -hmm. So it's easy to find. Right. But um, that really, it, it really is always interesting to me, uh, the history of the textbooks and how they changed. And really, the McGuffey's were out of fashion. I think the last actual revision was 1896. So people had, mm -hmm. had quit using them, you know, like more than a decade before your school right. started. And, and there was a lot more choices in the late 19th century. Have you ever read McGuffey's or any, any oh, part? Oh, yeah. yeah. We used those, in fact, our first couple of years yeah. of reenactments just because they were the only reproduction reader that we could get. Yes. And and so we were happy to uh, to be able to switch. We raised enough money so that we could go online and buy the actual text that they did yes. use. Well, I I don't blame you for being happy. Not only is it more accurate, but but you know, I think the readers in the late nineteenth and earliest twentieth century are just more. They're better readers. They've got better yeah. stories, yeah. and the, I I, just, bet. I I like them a lot better. Yeah, so, the kids so, can identify with them a lot better than they could the others. <laughs> yes, well, they're a lot easier to to read, and they have actual plots, and you have interesting things in them, um, like. Uh, I, I, not for school or anything, but I collect uh, old readers, and they have great things in them, you know, like the old man in the mountain and, and you know, stuff like that, and that's uh -huh. not in there in McGuffey's. So yeah. what was the name of the reader that you actually used in your class then? Uh, the Brooks readers and the Gordon readers. And that's the thing that I found real interesting is that many of the country schools didn't use just one set of readers. They had multiple sets. And I would think it would have been so confusing for the teachers to have 
not only different grades using different texts, but different pupils in different grades using the different texts. So she might have uh, three second graders, and two would be using Gordon's, and one would be using Brooks. And so I'm not sure how she always worked it. That does seem kind of confusing. Did was there any indication? Was there like um, within one family? Did they tend to use one or the other, yeah. or were? Yes, I believe that's where that came from. You know, the kids were still bringing their own textbooks from home, so I imagine it was pretty much whatever they could bring. You know, whatever their older brothers and sisters or cousins or neighbors had used that they would bring to use, so the teacher would make do with that. Well, it's interesting. Yeah, the the. Uh, some work that my uh, friend Nancy Cleveland's done on the schools in Smet, they had a list of required readers that they were supposed to buy. And I wondered if maybe since you had, you know, just two sets, if maybe they had for some reason, you know, allowed them to do choose between the two. But that may know. not be something that you know. Yeah, I really don't. Okay. Study, okay, well... Um, Another thing that tends to happen a lot in one-room schools is that the only books that they uh, really use are the readers because they're the easiest ones to find. But I think you have found some other books too, right, that weren't just the readers? And actually, the ones other than the readers were easier to find online for some reason. Really? That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, really. I struggled finding enough Brooks and Gordon's readers. So I've you know, gone to antique shops all that I can, but they're they're kind of tricky to find. So I hope the kids are pretty easy on them, and I don't have to replace them very often. <laughs> so, what other uh, subjects books were you able to find? Uh, we've been using uh, the spelling, the Hunt's orthography. Uh, of course, the children didn't all have their own speller at our school, so that was pretty easy. I only needed to buy one of those that the teacher would use. And then the Hamilton's arithmetic, uh, they used both the elementary for the younger pupils and the complete for the older pupils. Those have been really plentiful. And then uh, the Crohn's physiology, and those also have been pretty easy to find. Okay. Oh, um, our our official program listeners uh, is asking if you could speak up a little bit. They said you oh, trailed sure. off. Okay, sure. I'll, uh, I'll start using my teacher voice. All right, that that should do it. All right. One thing uh, that I especially love about your school is the stove, since that's that's another thing that it seems like all these museums. Um, tend to do. Even if they had a furnace, they drag that out and put in instead a pot-bellied stove because everybody knows all one-room schools had a pot-bellied stove. But you didn't do that, and you have an amazing stove. It's only the second one like that I have seen in a one-room school museum, and the other one I know they stupidly pulled it out and put in a pot-bellied in its place. Why don't you tell us something about your marvelous stove? Ah, you bet. Well, to find the 1910 Smith system, which was a jacketed circulating heater that the school had when it was new, I must have talked to about every stove guy in the country. Uh, Jerry Wagner from Ontario, Wisconsin, finally found one for me. It's 500 pounds, four feet across, cast iron, of course, ended up costing about $2,000, and he delivered and installed it. And then I got the head of maintenance at Living History Farms to come spend a day with um, myself and the other two reenactment teachers, and he taught us how to use it. Uh, Sometimes we have too much smoke, but it sure adds atmosphere to our reenactments. 
according to the period books, the older furnaces at the time made pupils sick, dull, and stupid. So they encouraged new schools to put in the new jacketed circulating heaters, which we had. Uh, here's how the new Smith system works. And this is from a 1913 article in our local newspaper. It says, fresh air is received from out of doors through a small shaft leading into the jacket. In here, it is warmed by the fire in the stove and radiated out into the schoolroom. In connection with the system, as it were, is a pipe leading out of the building through which the foul air passes. In this way, a good circulation of pure air is maintained and the impure air is taken from the building. And this article goes on to tell that there are four schools in our county that were using this wonderful new system. For those who haven't had the chance to see see your marvelous, amazing stove, and I know I go on about it, but I'm just I'm so <laughs> pleased that you have it. I think it's just, it's so amazing that you yeah. Do. And there were two other innovations in in our school at this time that were real common uh, in the 1913 area, and one was the unilateral lighting, which is the big windows on one side of the school, mm-hmm. and the reason for that was that they thought that this would save students' eyesight by having the big light source come over their left shoulder and spreading across their desk. And then the other innovation during this time period uh, is that we have an entryway with a belfry bell. So those three things were were new at the time of our school, so we always point those out. Well, and and they are definitely all interesting. But... um, Let's go back to the stove just one minute. Why don't you give us just a little description of what it looks like so they have some idea what I'm talking about. Well, they they described it as a black monster. (laughs) Now, when you walk into the room, it kind of overwhelms the room because it's big and it's like a huge black cylinder in one corner, and these were put in the corner of the the room instead of in the middle like the old pot-bellied stoves were. And it's pretty much all you see is this black cylinder. Uh, You only see a pipe sticking out the top, and if you peek around the back, you see, you know, the pipe leading to the outside also. Uh, So it's not until you go up and you open the door of the jacket that you can actually see the stove inside. And, uh, and it, it's fairly huge. I mean, it's it's yeah. like what would you? How tall would you say that was? Like four feet? Uh, oh yeah, feet? it's it's almost to the ceiling. The jacket yeah. is, mm-hmm. and half a ton, so it's it's pretty big. <laughs> um, yeah, the kids the kids are always in awe of it, and they you know can't wait to to use it. And if it's going when they they come in, they uh, of course race over to the stove and they want to open it right away and see the actual fire. <laughs> so just out of curiosity, does it burn um, uh, coal or wood? It could have burned either. At our school, they used wood, um, so that's what I am using in our reenactments is wood. I'm always interested in that because it seems like coal for such a long time played an important role in in our lives, and now while it's still used industrially, it's just sort of disappeared from common life. Mm-hmm. I mean, you just don't see it anymore. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. okay. But you guys used wood in the first place, so we won't <laughs> move on from that. Uh, let's talk about your windows a little bit because okay. uh, I think that's something else that that. Uh, sort of surprises people. As you say, the light all, all came from one direction, but people, I think, are used to the, the picture of a uh, one-room school having, you know, like the 
three equidistant windows on the two mm-hmm. sides, but uh, your school, it's its just sort of like all on one. Did that really affect the ar- arrangement of the school any? Yes, they, they would always make sure that the that the light source was coming from the south. Uh, I think some maybe from the east, but I've I've read that it was from the south for sure. That the that's where they'd have the windows. Yeah. So uh as you're driving around, if you see a building that looks kinda like a one room school and then there's just like a bank of windows side by side just pressed up against each other, that's this kind of lighting. So Right. And it was it was popular for a little bit and then it kinda went away again, I think. But it <laughs> I guess they found the student's eyesight was not improving. Yeah. So that's interesting. And and uh the Belfry um it, as opposed to having a bell outside, I guess is is what was the right. innovation. Right, you bet. Uh, and and then of course uh, the teacher would ring that when the kids were were on their way to school and school was almost ready to start. That was their signal that they better start running so they wouldn't be late. <laughs> so um, since we're on the school bell starting the day, why don't you run through a little bit of the schedule of of what your uh, classes do? Okay, well, the students arrive by 9 in the morning, and uh, they get off the bus and bring everything in with them, and they find their seat that has a, a note on it, so they know that that's their seat. And then for the first 20 minutes, we talk about how Taylor Number 4 is like their school and how it is different from their school. Uh, we talk about the word frugal and uh, how people back then conserve things and use things over and over again. Um, then we talk about authenticity and using their imagination and how when they look out the window, instead of seeing the city buildings and hearing the sounds from the town, that they're going to look out the window and see fields uh, and dirt roads and occasional when you see a farmer going down the road with his horse and uh, wagon. And then we talk about how they they already know what grade they're assigned to be in for the day when they arrive. And so then we talk about how one grade at a time is going to be called up to the recitation bench for about 10 minutes while the others have to do seat work, so they have to be good, independent workers. Um, So then after we've um, talked about also uh, things like the flag and the Pledge of Allegiance and who was the president and the fact that the Hawkeyes beat Iowa State that fall of, of 1913. Woohoo! They uh, like yeah, that. That's a good one. You bet they like that little fact. At least the Hawkeye fans do. <laughs> then uh, the kids go back outside, and when the Belfry Bell rings, then they are magically transformed back to 1913. And at that time, they take on the identity of that 1913 child who lives within two miles at the school and probably walked with his or her brothers and sisters or cousins or neighbors. And then uh, they come in, leave their wraps in the entryway, and uh, proceed into the main room where we start the day with opening exercises, which they did for 10 minutes. And then we start out with reading, which again was 10 minutes per grade. Uh, Then we have uh, arithmetic and a 15-minute recess, and uh, then we come back in and do some language activities. We go to lunch. Uh, The kids brought a period lunch in their lunch pail, so then we take those outside on nice days and have a lunch and another recess, and then we go ahead with uh, the rest of our 
activities. Some of the children have memorized poems, and so they will recite those if they did memorize a period poem. And then uh, we do social studies. Uh, I guess they didn't call it social studies back then, but uh, we do some geography activities, some physiology, and then we try to end the day with a spelling bee because although they didn't have those every day in 1913 at our school, they did have them occasionally, and the kids for some reason just love those spelling bees. And then uh, uh, we'll have our closing exercises, which is only about five minutes. Then uh, they'll, I'll ring the bell again, and they are transformed back to present times, and that's when they pick up their things and leave. <laughs> Since uh, you're you're dealing with classes of all the same age students, do they do you kind of do more math lessons than they did, or do you sort of create levels of of kids within the um, same age class? Well, that's when the pretending comes into play because uh, the first graders have to pretend that that first grade work is is kind of challenging for them. Like I tell them, now you can't just whip through and count 1 to 50. You have to, you know, do it slowly like you would have when you were in first grade. And likewise, the older students uh, that are pretending that they're in fifth or sixth grade, they know that they're going to meet some real challenging materials because they are doing fifth and sixth grade lessons. Okay, so so you do divide it up. Right. They do exactly what their grades did during that time period. So they're doing pretty hard work, and if it's too hard for them, they have to pretend that they understand it. <laughs> well, that sounds like a, a really nice schedule. Do you, do you find that this is something that the, the kids enjoy, or do you get some resistance? Or it, 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 it just amazes me with every class, and it amazes their homeroom teachers, too, because quite often if the homeroom teacher hasn't done a reenactment before, she's concerned about several pupils who tend to be behavior problems. But it must be the, the newness and the uniqueness of the situation. We have never had a behavior problem at our reenactments. You know, I think it's just the constant change and new things to look at and discover that just kind of mesmerizes them, and, and they have a great time and behave very well. Well, that's great to hear. Uh, something a little bit unusual about how your museum works as opposed to a lot of one-room schools that have kind of similar programs is that you provide the school tours clothing. So why don't you tell, tell me a little bit about how that system works? You bet, you bet. Well, actually, we provide three things to the homeroom teacher. One is the manual from which uh, they're required to do for preparation activities with their class, and then there's also a lot of optional activities. Uh, Two, we provide a tub of lunch pails, which the children use to bring their period lunches in. And three, uh, we provide the two tubs with the old-fashioned girls' and boys' clothing that they wear for the reenactments. And the clothing isn't really authentic to 1913, but it really helps the kids to play their roles, and they love dressing up and doing their hair different. Um, The Sunday before the reenactments, the classroom teacher picks up the three tubs from my front porch, and then uh, they return the tubs the Saturday after their reenactment, and I launder the clothing so that the next teacher can pick up the tubs. And I get the clothing wherever I can find it, you know, uh, secondhand shops, Goodwill, uh, people, you know, in the area know that I'm always looking for overalls, so people just drop them off on my porch. <laughs> yeah, and and that has, um, well, and and it, and it sounds like it's, it's worked really well for you, which is, it's kind of an interesting thing. And I think it probably does help the kids get a little bit more in that mindset. 
Yeah, and then the kids have an option of uh, bringing you know, a basket from school to use instead of a lunch pail or bringing, dressing up in their own clothes from their own home. And so sometimes we have grandmas or mothers making complete costumes for the children to wear. So um, you, you mostly are getting the, your and your stated goal is to get the students in the county to all get to have this experience. Do you deal with any schools outside your county if they wanted to participate, or is it just for them? I have invited a couple of the closer schools that are out of the county, and I have not been successful in getting them in, but I haven't pushed it too much because there's only two other volunteer school teachers and myself, and we're pretty busy just doing our county uh, groups. And then we not only do our public schools, we do our private schools, and we do a lot of homeschooled groups, which are really fun because they automatically come different grades. (laughs) Uh, Then also we have a a group of adults, uh, special needs adults, that pick up the litter from our school grounds. And I do modified reenactments with them, which are a lot of fun. And then uh, we've had nursing home uh, people come in and service organizations come in and, and do also uh, modified reenactments. But we don't really encourage those other groups because we just want to focus on our fourth graders. So uh, the rest of the year, can people come out and tour the school and see the great stove and the funny windows and all of the stuff? Uh, yes. Now, we're not going to... Uh, Soak up the fire, you know, for a for a tour in January. So it's going to be pretty cold if you come in the winter months. But if someone wants to volunteer, just uh, if someone wants to come and look through our school, just give me a call or our local historical society, and we will sure set it up. Uh, other, though, so you focus on the fourth graders. If somebody wanted to like see your program or get an idea, you know, watch a group, could they do that? Sure, sure. And uh, we always invite the parents of the students to come and, and sit in the back of the, the classroom during the, the reenactments. Um, the teachers sit back there, but it's kind of hard for the teachers sometimes because they always want to help, and we say, no, no, you just have to sit there and, and not help at all. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine that would be kind of hard on them when they're used to, <laughs> to acting. But um, So when you, when you have had like tours going through have you been challenged by people saying something like that's not how it was at my school or maybe some of the kids would say you know i watched uh, some western and it wasn't like that in their school or are people pretty accepting what you're presenting is 1913 yeah that hasn't been a problem for us Um, and you know a couple times when something similar has come up we just say that different schools in different time periods handled things you know their own way and just many ways that things could have been done. Which is very true, but uh, sometimes people get really hung up on their one experience and they think every single person who went to school from 1800 to 1950 was exactly like them. Yeah, right. And then, you know, I try and emphasize, too, that the teacher herself was such an important variable in country schools because she could make or break the school. She might be very strict, she might be lenient, she might have good discipline, poor discipline, she might love music, so they'd have music every day, or she might not, they might only have it once in a great while, so, you know, just the the character of the school teacher herself determines so much. 
I think that's really true. And if you had a, a good school teacher, I think that it was about the best kind of education you could get for a start. But if you had a poor school teacher, then you were kind of sunk. Right, and hopefully those poor ones wouldn't last real long. Yes. So what? Uh, since you did a lot of the collecting and, and making the school uh, 1913-like, what has been your favorite find? What you know, physical object did you find that was just the thing that you're still pleased that you found it? Well, I think I'd probably have to say the teacher's reading circle book. It's a great big book where all of the Marshall County country school teachers from 1913 until, oh gosh, I don't remember what year it was, maybe the 1930s, they they met monthly. They took turns meeting at each other's schools. They met monthly and they would uh, read and discuss professional books. So they were trying to improve their teaching skills. And so I found the 1913 Taylor Number no. 4 teacher, Miss Mary Kurtz, in there. And so I've got a list of the books that she uh, read and studied. Uh, one happened to be Colgrove's The Teacher in the School. And Colgrove was an Iowa State Teachers College professor. And uh, Colgrove advocated replacing recitations with well-prepared lessons. And so I, I'm finding that she was reading pretty progressive books. So that lets me know that... If I want to vary a little bit from the curriculum and, for instance, bring in the circus materials for a lesson, that Mary Kurtz very likely would have done something like that also. She was, um, she'd also read um, uh, Ray's Jean Mitchell School, and in that book, uh, the teacher uh, focused on using children's experiences outside of school to enrich their school experiences. So I'm assuming that Miss Mary Kurtz would have tried to do that a little bit also. So I think that's my favorite find, the teacher's reading circle. And then not only do I see Miss Kurtz, what she was reading and studying, I can see you know what other teachers in the county were studying at the same time. Well, it, it sounds like a really great find, and, and it certainly must help you with how their mindsets are. And and it's interesting how many of those those old kind of classic professional books you can still find if mm-hmm. if you know to look for them. Right, so. right. It had many layers of dust on it. <laughs> <laughs> well, while it would be really interesting if you were researching schools, it probably wouldn't be very interesting at all otherwise, yeah, right. unless you were doing genealogy. Um, right. What uh, what particular thing? Um, are you still looking for? If you could could have one thing to add to your school to make it more perfect, what would you what would you still want to find? Oh gosh, well I'm still looking for those uh, textbooks that uh, that I mentioned before the the Brooks readers and uh, you know, I can't even think of the other ones. Um, uh, yeah, the Brooks and the Gordons. <laughs> there we go. I'm still looking for those. And then also, uh, I'd just like to find a, a school clock that has the Roman numerals instead of the, the the other numerals. Because in one of our arithmetic activities, we we use we introduce Roman numerals, and that just would make kind of a nice tie-in. And then in the 1913 Taylor Number no. Four School, Ward told me that their clock did have Roman numerals. <laughs> so those two items would be great to find. 
I think uh, those are, are good things to look for. And since you mentioned it again, why don't you uh, go ahead and tell us what exact level of those two textbooks that you're looking for. So if anybody out there knows or has one, then know you're looking for them. Okay, let me see if I've got it listed here so I don't say it wrong. Okay, I'm looking for uh, the 1910 or 1912 Gordon's First Reader and Gordon's Third Reader. And I'm looking for the 1907 Brooks's Second Reader and the 1907 Brooks's Fourth Fifth Readers. So if anybody does happen to have a lead on that, I would really appreciate knowing. Do you have the um, address or email of the Historical Society, if that would be the best way to get a hold of, of you? Um, probably just emailing me would, would be okay. the best. All right. And my email, are you ready for it? Yep. Is jjlang, that's L-A-N-G, at mediacom, bb, is in bad boy, dot, Net. I'll repeat that. It's J J Lang at MediaCom B B dot net. Okay, so if anybody has uh, anything to do with either of those two readers or sees one in an antique store or any place around the country, uh, I think you could really help an already wonderful program by uh, letting Julie know. You bet. I'd love to purchase those. <laughs> okay. Uh, so let's back away from the physical for a little bit and go back to the reenactment. What is your favorite part of the day when you're doing the, the reenacting? Oh, gosh. Um, I think watching the children be so engrossed and on task the whole day is is really rewarding. And then maybe my favorite thing would be at the end of the day because the kids are so sorry to leave. But it, it's really fun getting their thank you letters. Uh, here's, I've got a letter in my hand that one of the kids sent me a couple weeks ago, and, and here's what Peyton wrote. He said, uh, Dear Miss Lang, thank you for teaching us at the one-room school. I had so much fun all day pretending to be a second grader in 1913. I loved taking the pail to get water and using the slates. The best was when Logan caught the mouse. I wish I could have written with an ink pen like the older kids did. It was the best day ever. Love, Peyton. <laughs> so <laughs> getting letters like that, you know, the kids had a great time. And just seeing them in the stores, you know, uh, months and years later, and, and they are so excited to see you and, and tell you that that was the greatest, you know, day they'd had and that they enjoyed it so much. Uh, hopefully we we change their attitudes about history. You know, so many children think that history is boring and dull, so we're trying to reshape that thinking a little bit. And I think I think you really are. Um, one of the it, the museums have really kind of gone from having sort of fairly static displays to doing reenactments where they watch other people in costume do things. But one-room schools, it's really kind of, uh, it, it was a very early adaption of immersion where the the kids can really, uh, well, sort of um, 
get jump into a whole pool of history and be acting like it themselves. And I think uh, that it is definitely one of the best ways to really understand something and to yeah. really help them get a, a different perspective on um, on how things are and how it works. People tend to get very bogged down just in their own viewpoint, and I I right. think that it's really a, a great thing that yeah. they can do that. Yeah, in today's uh, uh, schools, the teachers are so hard-pressed to get through X amount of curriculum so the students will do well on the test. So we really appreciate our school district being supportive and, and letting the children do this activity. They see the value in it. Did you have any trouble uh, getting schools to uh, to participate in the first place? I mean, because it is kind of a little different yeah. idea if they haven't had it. Uh, you know, I'm not even sure what it was. It may have been that being a teacher myself, you know, I kind of knew the teacher jargon, and it, I had no barriers to, to starting the reenactments and continuing them from the teachers or the administration. Well, that's great. Um, another thing that's a little different is that uh, you have it be free, so they don't have to, to pay any. Is is uh, Do you have to continually fundraise, or was that initial yes. business? Okay. Yes, we are always raising money. Uh, we operate strictly on donations, um, and occasionally I'll get a grant from a local group. For instance, we just painted our school, and uh, so I got $2,500 from that from uh, some local organizations. It seems like you know the more successful your program is and the longer it's been operating, uh, the more willing local organizations are to help your funding of that program. Well, that's good to hear because I, I think it definitely is uh, something that is worth continuing. Uh, so why don't you just, since since we were talking about it anyway, why don't you, you've got, the school is just sort of one part of the museum complex. Why don't you just, just quickly run through the rest of it so if people were were planning to come, they'd know what else there was to see. Um, well, our, our main museum is two blocks away from our our school is, and then right beside our country school is a Civil War house, the Glick Sauer House, uh, and then the fourth facility that our local historical society operates is the uh, Edel Blacksmith Shop, which is about 15 miles out in the country, and it's actually owned by the State Historical Society, but we help the daily running of that program. So if someone wanted to come out, they head to the the museum in, in Marshalltown, and that's where they'd start and you'd right. go from there. Right. And uh, can I give you that phone number? Of you our sure can. Local museum. Okay. It is 641-752-6664. And if our... Uh, secretary isn't there at the time. She will get back to you right away. Okay. Uh, let's go back just a little bit. I just saw you present on uh, your program again at at the Country School Association of America conference, and uh, you had recommended some books uh, at the end of your program. Do you want to share those with people? Uh, sure, sure. Uh, now, these are... are pretty much uh, for my time period, so depending on what your school's time period is, they might not work, but uh, one that uh, 
was a little beyond my time period. It's 1918. I kind of use a five-year door since we were 13. I could barely squeak in some 1918 materials. But it's called Practical Methods, Aids, and Devices for Teachers, Volumes 1 and 2. So this 1918 book is just a fabulous hands-on book for teachers showing you how to make uh, games and what activities kids can do at their seats while you're at the recitation bench with the others. And just as it says, very practical things that the teacher needs to know that are kind of hard to find in other books. Uh, Then I really liked Cutler and Stone's Rural School from 1913. Um, Colgrove, the teacher and the schools I'd mentioned, uh, that one doesn't have as much detail, but it's just as nice as far as knowing uh, what the progressive teachers were doing and thinking in this time period. Uh, I think I already mentioned Ray's Gene Mitchell School from 1901, and that was a real fun read if anybody's looking for that. Um, then Carney's Country Life and the Country School from 1912 was good. And the last one that I might mention is Kern's Among Country Schools. That's a 1906 book. So there's a lot of wonderful books out there, and they're really reasonable online that people can find. Yes, I I think that is one nice thing about older books is they tend, people kind of expect them to be expensive, but most of the time they're not. So you can mm-hmm. put together a nice little collection. Or if you don't want to buy them, even the older books, you can quite often interlibrary loan through your library if you go in and sure. ask about that. Yeah. Uh, and since I mentioned uh, the Country School Association America Conference, uh, let's uh do you mind talking just a little bit about what the the conference is like in case anybody wants to get all excited about going next year yeah, where we're going sure. down to Georgia? Sure. Oh, it's it's really a, a fabulous three-day experience if you're into country schools at all. Um, this was my first national uh, conference. I'd done the state conference for quite a few years, but uh, there are so many topics. The range is, is just incredible. It seems like it goes from fundraising and reenactments to um, uh, things like the arts and uh, oh, just any kind of, of topic that you can imagine that would be related at all to country schools. And the contacts that you make with other people are, are invaluable because, uh, uh, for instance, uh, I had someone that was at the conference, they emailed me and they said they found two of the books that I was looking for. So. Oh. Yeah, so that was great. Good start already. But um, another time uh, at one of the conferences, a state conference, uh, I talked to a man who who had some old country school photos from my time period, and he showed them to me. And one of those showed an inside of the school in 1913, and there was a bulletin board up. And so I asked him to get me a copy of that, and I put that in my photo album. And I'm using that as, as proof that they could have had uh, bulletin boards in 1913 country schools because I put one up in my school just because I needed some display display space. So anyway, the contacts are great. The food was wonderful. The, it's run very well. Um, so I, if anybody at all is interested, I hope you'd, you'd give it a shot. And uh, it's uh, countryschoolassociation.org is the website for that. And uh, we've got a conference the national conference is every June, and they usually have the firm dates by the time we leave the national one, but because of where some other dates fall uh, this year, they were uh, 
I don't think they've they've firmed them up, but it'll be sometime in June, um, and they will and it will be in uh, Rome, Georgia. So uh, every other it's a an annual conference. They try and go uh, one year in the Midwest somewhere in the you know the Midwest defined broadly because there's a lot of state organizations um, here. And it's just, it's where the kind of core of the membership is. But we want to make sure that we're not leaving out parts of the country. So then they also do someplace outside as well. So uh, we're going to be doing Georgia next year. The year after that, it's uh, St. Joseph, Missouri. And after that, New York. And I don't remember where the next one is, but uh, so it moves around the country. They've uh, done, uh, let's see, all just sort of all over the place, and it, it really is a very nice uh, conference. You learn a lot of different things, meet a lot of people, and it's uh, just well worth worth the trouble of going if you get a chance. So. Uh, and if you want to join their listserv, you can email me and I will sign you up for it because that's what I do for the organization. I run the listserv. So we are getting close to the end of the hour. Can you believe that already? Wow, it went fast. I do have a quote. Do you have time for my quote? Oh, you sure do. Rain? Okay, well, this one I think just says so much, speaks volumes to, to what we're doing here. It's from Tom Moraine, who's the past director of our Iowa State Historical Society. And he said, without access to the past, we are restricted to only those things that we can imagine out of our own experience. History opens vast new worlds to explore where the people looked at the world in different ways and ordered their lives according to different priorities. Anyway, that one really speaks to me, so hopefully it will to you also. Yes, it's a very nice quote. So um, did you... Did you have anything else that you that I didn't ask you about that you wanted to share about your really uh, wonderful school program? And I really hope some of the people listening will get a chance to, if not see the actual uh, program itself, will at least come out and see the school, which is, is so nicely done to 1913 and really gives you a nice, clear contrast um, because one room schools did change over the years. It wasn't yeah. the same in 1913 as it was in 1940 or 1950 or 1800. And it's right. it's really great to have those schools that have made the commitment to a particular year. And it's a much different experience than just going to one of the kind of um, these are things that all were in this building at one time over the decades type museum. So. I'm very glad uh, and appreciate everything you do with that. Well, thank you, Sarah, and and likewise with me. You provide a great service to people here also. Yeah, well, thank you. Um, but I said at the beginning, was there anything else you wanted to share about the school that I, I had to ask? No, I think we covered most of it. Okay. Well, um, let's just tell them one more time the books that you're looking for and give out your email one more time if so they're if they were didn't get it written down the first time they got it. Okay, I'm looking for 1910 or 1912 Gordon's first or third grade readers and the 1907 Brooks 
second reader and the 1907 Brooks fourth fifth readers. And if they want to get in touch with you, you're, uh, they can contact. I can give you my phone also. Is that okay? If you if it's okay with you, it's okay. Okay. With me. Yeah, my phone is six four one seven five three. Seven zero zero six. Again, that is six four one seven five three seven zero zero six. Or they could email me at the email that I gave earlier. Okay. Well, thank you very much for being on, Julie. I really appreciate it, and I think people got an idea of what your great school is like. And um, thank you for sharing. You bet. Thank you, Sarah. Okay. And I just want to remind everybody once again that we're actually going to end up having another episode tomorrow. We're going to be talking to the people from the Mankato Convention and Visitors Center. You can stream it or you can call in at 714-242-5253. That's 714-242-5253 or toll-free, 1-877-633-9389. Toll-free, 1-877-633-9389. And thank you very much for tuning in today, and I hope that we'll get you back for another Trendlebed Tales real soon. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over the limit by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.